Look, when you get out of the will of God, if you're a regenerate person, then your spirit within you is grieved because you can not only quench the spirit, but the Bible teaches you can grieve the spirit. You quench the spirit when you don't do in the positive realm that which you ought to do. You grieve the spirit when you don't do what you should do. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working on a study of the book of Jonah, and today Pastor Carl begins the first part of his final message in his study on the book of Jonah. We have seen Jonah run from God, get swallowed by the whale, and preach a great revival. Let's join Dr. Brogy as he examines the end of the story. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Jonah chapter 4. This is the last in our series of messages on this prophet. I suppose next to the books of Genesis and Daniel, there's no single book in all of the Bible that is more badly battered and beaten up in the sea of criticism than the prophet Jonah. Some believe that it's a myth, that it's mythological. Some, in wanting to escape the miraculous nature of the book, say it's only a parable. Some allegorically interpret it, but Christ thought that the prophet Jonah was a real historical person. Besides linguistically, the events that are presented in this book are presented as historical narrative. A real prophet from a real place with a real dad whose name is given goes to a real city where there are real people to whom he preaches the gospel in which the single greatest mass conversion in the history of the world to date. The biggest conversion in all of human history is still in the future. What we have sought to do for 2,000 years during the time of Jacob's trouble, during the time of the Great Tribulation, Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse that this gospel of the kingdom will go to the whole world. And then the end will come. Indeed, during that seven-year period, as you read the Revelation, and the witness of the 144,000 Jewish men, the two witnesses and an angel, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are saved. But in the interim, we are to be faithful as if we were the only people on the planet that cared about the lost. We can't just think, well, it's some missionary out there, some church over there. If we're the only born-again Christians on all the planet, it would not change our responsibility one bit. Now let's take a moment to put our passage in the overall context. One of my goals for us as a congregation is that we're able to think our way through entire books of the Bible. When you think of Ephesians, you should think two divisions, what we believe, one through three, how we behave, four through six. When you think of Romans, you should think three sections, the doctrinal section, one through eight, the national section, nine through 11, how Israel was elected of God, how Israel rejected the Messiah, and how God will restore Israel, and then the applicational section, 12 through 16. And when you have the big picture of a book in your mind, then it becomes a tool, not just in your own life, but to be able to use it for those whom God calls you to disciple. If you remember, this chart is a reminder that this book revolves around two commissions. There's the first commission of Jonah. And so the book opens with the words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet. 
And then if you remember in chapter three and in verse one, we're told now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's the recommission of Jonah. And so we learned how in the first commission of Jonah, it began with disobedience in chapter one, but it ended with obedience in chapter two. And then when he is recommissioned, it begins with obedience in chapter three, but it ends with disobedience in chapter four. He's the AWOL prophet of the Old Testament. In the beginning of the book, he's absent without leave. At the end of the book, he is absent without love. And we've seen that these two commissions revolve around two principal places. Chapters one and two take place on the sea. Chapters three and four take place in the city. In the first two chapters, the theme is God's kindness to Jonah. In the second two chapters, the theme is God's kindness to the Ninevites. And so the book revolves around those two commissions. The first commission is very simple. Go to Nineveh and proclaim, preach the good news. And as a prophet, like Peter reminds us in Acts the 10th chapter, they preached Messiah. All the prophets, Peter said, all the prophets preached the coming of the Messiah. That would be true of the first prophet Abel, and it would be true even of a man like Jonah. They may not have known that his name was Yeshua, but nonetheless, they knew what the message was and what God had promised to do. Now, as this map reminds you, instead of going northwest uh, towards Tarshish, excuse me, northeast towards Nineveh, he goes northwest to Tarshish. He's in Joppa, that would be Tel Aviv today, and he goes 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He's running from God. And of course, when you run from God, if you go west when God calls you to go east, he's going to discipline you. That is if you're born again, because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. While he loves all the world, he has a special affection on those who are his, his beloved. And so God disciplines his prophet. He hurls a great storm on the sea. The sailors are coming unglued. They're afraid the ship is going to go under. They draw lots. Providentially, the lot falls on Jonah. They see he is the culprit. Now, of course, at first, they try to get rid of certain things. They jettison the cargo to save the ship. That's what a lot of people do today. They try to get rid of their lying, their stealing, their lust, and their lies, and they think that, that if they can somehow lighten their spiritual ship, that they can get right with God. Then when that doesn't work, they row hard. Literally, they dug into the water, the text says. But all of their toil and sweat and tears could not rescue them, and neither can yours. And so when they cast lots and they find the troublemaker is Jonah, what do they do? They throw him overboard. He doesn't jump, but he is thrown overboard at their hands. And the sea instantly stops its raging, Jonah 1.15 says. And Jonah is pictured by the Lord Jesus as a type, as an illustration of himself. Sometimes people call things types that aren't necessarily types. But, of course, Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. He said that when the very first verse of the New Testament had yet to be written. The scriptures about him, you can find Christ through Genesis all the way through Malachi. And of course, Jesus takes the wonderment out of it. He makes it clear 
that just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, even so he would be in the heart of the earth. And of course, when Jonah is thrown overboard, when he has a vicarious death of sorts, the sea immediately stops its raging. And the only way, the only way that you're going to receive peace with God is through another substitute that Jonah pictured, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church at Coloss that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. And so in one moment, more was accomplished than all of their toil, all their lightning of the ship. And that's true for you if you're ever going to meet God in heaven. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It's salvation, it's the gift of God, it's not as a result of works so that nobody can boast or brag. He's thrown overboard, he sinks down, and of course, before he drowns, God appoints a great fish and swallows Jonah. And you would do what Jonah did, you'd start praying. And he prayed earnestly while in the belly of that great fish, and of course, Um, He doesn't get relief until he promises to keep the vow that he made when he was called to be a prophet of God. So we read in chapter two and in verse nine, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. So God did not let Jonah drown, but neither did he let him out of that fish until he promised to keep his vow. And so Jonah was in the belly of that great fish, and it's not until he repents and get his heart right that we read in verse 10 of that chapter, then the Lord, Yahweh, notice all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, distinguished from capital L, small letter, O-R-D. There are different spellings in the English Bible, whether it's capital G-O-D or capital G, small letter O-D, that tells you which name of God is being used. If you're not sure, read the index or the prefix. I should say the the introduction to the NASB. Most Bibles will distinguish that in um, in the front of the Bible. Then the Lord Yahweh commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So not only do we find a type of the substitutionary death of Christ, we also find a picture of his supernatural resurrection. The fish vomited Jonah up. It's very graphic in the Hebrew. Gravy and all, throws him up. And of course, he comes out unharmed and healthy. It was a miracle. You say you believe it? Yes, I believe it. I believe in every miracle in the Bible because I believe in God. I don't have any difficulty with miracles. I don't have any difficulty with God preserving Jonah. Again, Jesus said it was a picture of his own resurrection. Paul the apostle asked King Agrippa this question. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? I mean, if God could make a man out of nothing, if God could make a great fish out of nothing, then don't you think that God could appoint a great fish to swallow that man and to protect him and to preserve him? Look, if the Bible said Jonah swallowed the fish, I'd believe it. God can do whatever he wants. All things are possible with God. Once you get past Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You'll have no difficulty with the miracles in the Bible. And so sadly, pathetically, theistic evolution has crept into the evangelical church, largely through men like Tim Keller, 
who in his book, Reason for God, says, listen, theistic evolution is a viable option for the believer. And then as recently as Lyshear said, Genesis 1 and 2 is filled with errors unless it is poetry. It's not poetry, it's history. And as soon as you rewrite biblical history, you change biblical morality. So I'm not surprised with his leadership and the revoice movement with Sam Alberry. And yes, my heart was broken last week when that great missionary school, the Black Forest Academy, invited him to come and speak. Look, when you tell these young people, look, if you have feelings of gay, it's okay, just don't act on them. You're feeding a problem. You're feeding a perversion. No, feelings like that are to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so after he spent three days and three nights under God's chastisement, he repents, he gets right, and God gives him a second chance because God is the God of the second chance, not in terms of salvation, Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews of his day, for unless you believe that I am he, that is God in human flesh, you will perish. You will die in your sin. The writer to the Hebrews said, for, all, for it is appointed for a man to die once, for men to die once. And after that, not reincarnation, after that, not a second chance like Clark Pinnock falsely taught, he knows better now. After that comes the judgment. But while there's no second chance for salvation, there is a second chance for service. And God loves to pick us up when we've made a mess out of our life, even as people who know him. And to clean us up, he loves to forgive. Now, let's see if we can get the outline of the book fixed in our mind. In chapter one, he is the... Huh? prodigal prophet. Come on now, you have a little more. In chapter one, he's the prodigal prophet. He is running from God. He basically says, I won't go. He gets swallowed by that great fish, and he would do what you would do, and he becomes the praying prophet. In chapter two, he is the praying prophet, and there he is running towards God, and he says, I will go. In chapter three, after he's vomited out on dry land, he becomes the the preaching prophet. There he's running for God and he basically says, I'm here. But finally, where we are today in the fourth chapter, he becomes the pouting prophet. He's running ahead of God and basically says, I wish I hadn't have come. All right, now we've spent the last two messages in the first eight verses. Today, we're just gonna focus on verses nine through 11, but for context, I wanna read the entire chapter one final time. Follow along in your Bible. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, "'Please, Lord, was not this what I said "'while I was still in my own country? "'Therefore, in order to forestall this, "'I fled to Tarshish, "'for I knew that you are a gracious "'and compassionate God, slow to anger, "'and abundant in loving kindness, "'and one who relents concerning calamity. "'Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, "'for death is better to me than life.' "'The Lord said, "'Do you have good reason to be angry?' Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. 
So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? The pouting prophet, everyone knows what it means to pout. We typically associate it with children, but it's certainly not limited to children. And so we've discovered in this chapter, while God has done a lot in the prophet's life, he has a lot more to do. He's still caught up with a certain degree of self-will, self-desire, self-determination that God needs to root out. And as we've been learning here in chapter four, God's plan for Jonah is not just to get him to go where he wants him to go, but he wants him to be what he's supposed to be. And remember, the New Testament in texts like 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. And so this is not simply what God has said, this is what God is saying. And in the early church, there was a long period of time when they didn't have the first verse of the New Testament. But they would go out and evangelize. And they would reason from the scriptures, from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you remember, let's zoom in a little tighter on chapter four. With each chapter, I've given you three words that summarize the chapter. If you've been here for all 10 messages, then you should have three words in out in the margin, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And in these last few weeks, I gave you three words for chapter four. In verses one through four, he enters a seminary. Some of you have always wanted to go to seminary. Well, you've had the chance. JTS, the Jehovah Theological Seminary. And he brings his prophet into the school, first in verses one through four with a course on attitude. He deals with the subject of attitude. Then in verses five through eight, he takes Jonah through a course on consistency, a course on consistency. And then finally, he matriculates into the third course in verses nine through 11, where he goes through a course on perspective, on perspective. So here in chapter four, it's a classroom scene where God is the professor and Jonah is the student. And God has three courses designed to meet three specific needs in his servant's life. And so we examine first the course on attitude. And so God asks a question here, do you have good reason to be angry. And of course, God loves to ask questions. And whenever you see the voice of God recorded in scripture asking questions, it's never to learn, for he is omniscient, it is only to reveal. In effect, he's helping Jonah, and by extension, us to see what is in our hearts. Now, if you're here last week in verses five through eight, we went through the course on consistency. 
We studied last Sunday how God wants to get Jonah off of the emotional roller coaster that's dictated by the circumstances in his life. And until God's word and not our circumstances rules us, then we will have an up and down Christian experience. Now, and if you remember, God gave him some audio visuals to teach him that lesson. He gave him a plant that he supernaturally created, and then he appointed a worm to eat the plant so that it died. So now he enrolls him on this third course on perspective. There's a note-taking outline in the bulletin. If you're new, if you're online, you can print it out. Two simple points this morning. First, God teaches Jonah about his warped perspective. He wants to teach Jonah about his warped perspective. Now, when we come to verses 9 through 11, it's not simply the conclusion of the book. It's really the apex of the book. It's the height of all that has come to a head. In verses 1 through 8, we got a clear picture of Jonah's heart. But now in verses 9 through 11, we get a picture into the heart of God himself. We find here a contrast between God's view of people and Jonah's view of people. Look, if you will, at verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Now, God gets more specific in his question about anger. The first question was simply, Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? It's a question, who's right, God or or Jonah? This second question is a little more focused because God is refining the curriculum. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He's helping him to see, as I hope you will see, that his perspective is a little here warped. Where has his anger taken him? Is it legitimate, Jonah, for you to be angry about the plant? Look at his response. I have good reason. I have good reason to be angry even to death. Or to paraphrase it, yes, God, I have good reason. My comfort has been interrupted. My lifestyle has been diverted. My ease has been interfered with. You're playing with my life. Yes, I have good reason to be angry and mad about this plant. Billy Sunday, who was kind of the Billy Graham of his day, he said that when people complained about his preaching, he said, well, if you take a stick and you throw it into a pack of dogs, the dog that gets hit will yelp the loudest. Well, Jonah just got hit. He's yelping. God put his finger on the problem, and God wants to show Jonah that the greatest problem in Jonah's life is an unhealthy love for Jonah. He's more interested in pleasing Jonah at this point than he is in pleasing the Lord. And unchecked anger will lead to bitterness. Look, when you get out of the will of God, if you're a regenerate person, then your spirit within you is grieved because you can not only quench the spirit, But the Bible teaches you can grieve the Spirit. You quench the Spirit when you don't do in the positive realm that which you ought to do. You grieve the Spirit when you don't do what you should do, when you just disobey God outright. And when your spirit is grieved, you begin to get displeased with yourself. And if left to fester, well, that anger becomes a root of bitterness, as the writer of the Hebrews says. And so at first... He's just kind of angry in general. You know, God, you looks like you're going to save all these Ninevites. When he's to the city, geographically, he's up high. 
Day 40 hadn't come, hoping God's going to just wipe it out. Maybe their repentance isn't real. But after a while, when you're out of fellowship with God, everything begins to bother you. He's bothered about little petty things. We get angry because our plans don't go the way we think they should go. Like maybe even God has interfered and, and after a while it just seems like life is one big irritant. The circumstances and trials of life just make us angry. That's a life that's not walking with the Lord. And so God in effect is saying, look where your anger has taken you. Is it right for you to get bent out of shape over these little petty annoyances? Now remember, I told you last time that some Christians falsely think, well, the Old Testament is just for another age. And sadly, some pastors never preach the Old Testament. But remember at the conclusion of Romans, Paul says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The earlier of times, of course, is the Old Testament era, the Old Covenant era, and is reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament didn't expire with Old Testament saints. It was not only written for their day, but it's written for our day. And so let me remind you that while Jonah belonged to an elite group of prophets, what happened in his life is instructional to us. There's a few prophets, actually three to be specific, that actually do a miracle. Um, Moses was the first one that God used to do a miracle through, and then Elijah and Elijah, you know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, those guys never did miracles. And there are people today in the charismatic Pentecostal movement that would have you to believe that miracles coming down through uh, the church should be just standard fare, that we should believe God for miracles. And sometimes what we call a miracle is not a miracle at all. Little baby's born, oh, what a magnificent miracle. It's not a miracle. Now, it's the handiwork of God Almighty. God wove that little creature, that little person, together in his mother's womb. But a miracle is when God transcends the physical laws that are to govern the physical universe. And God didn't do that very often. He just did it on the great ganglions of human history. And the next set of miracles, you know, after Moses, after hundreds of years went by, and Elijah and Elisha, and hundreds of years went by, and then came Christ and the apostles. And when they were off the scene, it ended. And the next cluster is still in the future during the time of the great tribulation period. So there are that group of elite prophets. Then there's another group of elite prophets, just a handful to whom they had a miracle done to them or for them. And Jonah falls into that perspective, into that category. And so it would be easy for us to think, well, you know, he's just so different. James reminds us of that truth, does he not, concerning Elijah the prophet? He says he's a man with a nature just like ours. He was cut out of the same piece of cloth that you and I were cut out of. And yes, while God did the supernatural through him, he was still an ordinary human being. And we do not want to miss the valuable lessons that God wants to teach Jonah and by extension, all of us. So each one of us really need to ask ourselves as God asked Jonah, what do I get excited about? And what do I get angry about? Now, Jonah's difficult life was the result of his own selfish, warped perspective. 
although we are called to love our neighbor in our actions, it goes far beyond that. The obedience of our actions must be accompanied by obedience in our attitudes. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchofscriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search of Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Jonah 010. Maybe you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will give the second part of his concluding message on his study in the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.